Father, we, as we thought about last night that uh, there is suffering that is part of the Christian life, and so we should not be surprised when we suffer. Father, help us to be those who would, uh, fear you more than man. Sometimes the, man's, the fear of man gets in our way, and, and sometimes we, uh, like Peter, uh, falter and uh, do not have the greatest testimony for you, but we thank you for your forgiveness, for your care for us, that you desire each of us to grow in you and grow more like your son day by day. Father, I pray for our brother Alex as he speaks to us and teaches us from your word that we would be uh, hearers of the word and not just hearers only, but also doers of the word, doers uh, what we hear and having a, a changed, uh, changed lives, changed actions based on what your word says. Father, I give him strength uh, as he speaks here this evening and uh, help him with the, the words from his mouth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Alex, how are you? Yeah. Good evening. And it's good to see that you all came back. You could have come up with a really good excuse not to come this evening, but thank you for coming. We're in a very important passage. Would you open to Acts chapter 20? An amazing passage. Unlike any other passage, we have Paul's direct words to the first Christian elders of one of the first Christian churches, the church at Ephesus. I don't know if you realize how much of the New Testament revolves around the church in Ephesus. Let's look at verse 22. We end it with verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we stopped. And now, another new section, and now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, probably through prophets, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, with such a warning, this would be the perfect time to retire. Head to the Aegean Sea. I'm an older man. I don't want imprisonment and afflictions. That's what most of us would do. Well, the Holy Spirit said it. Maybe he's telling me, don't go. Well, Paul was a man of great courage, wasn't he? Fearless. And although we have these warnings of imprisonment and afflictions, he goes ahead. Now, remember from yesterday, he's on his way to Jerusalem with a contingency of Gentile representatives from the different churches, and they have made a collection, relief funds, for the poor in Jerusalem. And on the way to Jerusalem, they stop on the shores of Miletus, and that's when Paul summons the elders of Ephesus to come and meet with him for a final farewell meeting. Final marching orders to the leaders of the church. Is that important? You know, there are so many books on church leadership. Church growth. This is the best one right here. 
Don't waste your time reading so many of these books. We have here the final words of the great apostle. And if you want more words, go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the churches. If you want church growth and how to operate a church, go to Christ. Go to Paul. Everything else is personal opinion. Now, verse 22 and 23 give us the background to one of the most dedicated statements made anywhere in the New Testament. Verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value. Uh Uh-oh, this is why he doesn't retire and go to the Aegean Sea. I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now the Holy Spirit warns him, afflictions, imprisonment await him, and this sets up the stage for his response to these warnings. What is his response? Well, it's one of the most challenging testimonies of personal devotion to Christ and to the commission he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing matters more to Paul than faithfully completing the task given to him directly by the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. Now, what is more valuable to us than our life? Our conscience existence. Well, he says, I don't consider it of any value. Now, this is not a suicidal statement. It's a statement made in comparison. Well, let's look at this comparison. He's so dedicated to Christ... And the gospel that his own future, his own reputation, his own comfort, his own security are of little value to him. He uses first a metaphor, an athletic metaphor. Uh, Paul likes these athletic metaphors because it's understood very well by the Greeks. And of course, it would be understood by us today. We are all uh, sports fanatics. I'm not, but I know some people are. He likes these athletic metaphors. And here's the first metaphor of a runner, a person in a race. It's not a dash. It's a marathon. It's a cross-country race. And when a runner is in a race, his goal is to persevere. His goal is to finish the race. You wouldn't get in a race if you didn't want to finish it. Now, this race, like all cross-country races, had many dangers and many adversities, many adversaries. But Paul says, in comparison to my life, I don't count it of any value. I must finish the race. The race is laid out by God. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. The race is a God-appointed race. By the way, you have a God-appointed race. The Lord has laid out for you a course. It's different for every one of us. We are to endure and we are to finish the race, which is our life ambition, our lives. It's what God has planned for us. Sometimes it's not very nice, this race. There's uphill and downhill. 
There's sunny days and there's horrible days. Run over creeks and logs and rocks. Sometimes it's very, very hard. But the job is to finish the race. And so that's what he says here, to finish the race. Then he uses another word picture here. Not only has a race, but he has a ministry. It's a commission. This ministry was given to him, and here's the key point, directly by the Lord Jesus. I received it, this commission, this ministry, from the Lord Jesus. And the ministry is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His life, in comparison to what the Lord Jesus gave him to do, is not comparable. Now, we have to ask, why is he so strong in this? Well, there's a real secret here of the Christian life. It's because he received the ministry directly from the Lord Jesus. That's what makes all the difference. It's who commissioned him. Remember we looked last night? He's a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not his own. He's bought with a price. And he must follow the Lord Jesus. Now there's two things. When you go through Paul's 13 epistles, there's two things that will come out about the Lord Jesus. Number one, he is God. Paul teaches the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a brand new Christian, just a teenager, I was studying my Bible quite a bit. And two young ladies came by my house, Jehovah Witnesses, and I thought, I'll do, I'll, I'll do, I'll make monkey meat of these girls. When they were done with me, I was turned, twisted upside down. I didn't know where I was coming or going. They just flattened me. They showed me in my own Bible. Jesus is Michael the Archangel. He's not God. I was rocked and shaken to the core of my faith. Well, maybe they're right and I'm wrong. Let's be honest. That started me on a pursuit of studying this particular doctrine. I've always been very sensitive to it. The, the divine nature of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And a book that helped me enormously was Martin, um, Walter Martin, Kingdom of the Cults. And very carefully, he took us through the Scriptures. Colossians 2.9. You all know Colossians 2.9, don't you? For in Him dwells all the deity, all the Godhead bodily. And then Hebrews 1 really struck me. Let all the angels of God worship Him. By the way, when I met with those girls again, I asked them that verse. They didn't have a real good answer for that. Let all the angels of God worship Him. Paul taught the divine nature of Christ. Well, if Jesus is God, then you must obey Him. The second thing that we see in Paul is the sacrificial atoning work for sinners. Jesus is both Creator and Redeemer. So, He must be wholeheartedly worshipped and served. Because the Lord Jesus gave him this commission, his life is of no value compared to fulfilling the ministry that the God-man gave him. The Savior gave it to him. It's who Jesus is. He met him on the Damascus Road and he was never the same again. Jesus is Lord was his message. Now there's a logic here that I want you to get. It's brought out very clearly by C.T. Studd, pioneer missionary to China, India, Africa. And he understood Paul's reasoning. 
And he wrote these words. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's the logic. I'm going to read it again. It's so important. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. It's exactly what he's saying. I received this mission from the Lord Jesus and I must accomplish it. My life doesn't mean anything in comparison to accomplishing, finishing the race and the ministry I received from the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac Watts, famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, brings out this same logic. <clears throat> Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Paul would say, I totally agree with that. I am under a divine commission. I'm under a divine Lord. And I must fulfill the ministry he has given to me. And the ministry is declaring the gospel of the grace of God. And my, my life means nothing compared to that mission. A verse that also brings out this logic is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Why don't you open your Bibles just in case you don't believe this verse. Open your Bibles. First, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. If I was forced to give one verse, a life verse. People ask, what's your life verse? Every time I get one, I find another one I like. So, this would be it. If I'm forced into it, this would be it. For the love of Christ controls us. What he means by that is Christ's love for him. Not our love for Christ. Our love for Christ is like the weather changes. The love of Christ controls us. It drives us. It motivates us. It compels us. Because we have concluded, all right, at some point in Paul's, Paul's life, probably shortly after Damascus Road, here he's reasoning, we concluded, we made this judgment. You also must make this judgment sometime in your life. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, it's good logic, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live here it is now, focus, might no longer live for themselves. That's our big problem, isn't it? We love to live for ourselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. So Paul says, divine logic, he's done all this for me, he's loved me, he's given his life for me. I can't live for myself anymore, it's impossible. I concluded this at some point in my life. I must live for Christ. Gordon Fee wrote these words. Whatever else the Christian faith is, and whatever the Christian life is all about, it finds its central focus ever and always on Christ. Christ is our life. He's the reason for breathing. Eric Alexander was considered one of the greatest preachers in the world, a Scottish preacher from Glasgow, Scotland. We've heard many, many of his tapes. We use it for training young men. And Eric Alexander was led to Christ by his older brother, who was a very devout man, a very holy man, who was only three years in the Lord's work before he died in a very unexpected way, at 29 years of age. 
After his brother died, Eric was given his brother's personal journal. And in that journal, he read these words. In some people's lives, Jesus Christ has no place. In every Christian's life, Jesus does have a place. In many Christian lives, Jesus Christ has a prominent place. But in a few Christians' lives, I have found that Jesus Christ has a preeminent place. That's what Paul is saying. Christ has the preeminent place in my life. I don't even count my life precious. I don't think it's valuable. I must finish the race and I must testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's all that's valued to me. And in that, he found his life. That's what Jesus said. Lose it to find it. Maybe you've heard this beautiful poem. I'll only read two standards of it by C.T. Studd. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and standing before his judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We can no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. That's the logic. That's biblical logic, Pauline logic. That explains this extraordinary statement about my life is of little value. This is the explanation to that strong statement. We used to have a neighbor, and our neighbor had a very, very expensive speedboat a top-of-the-line camper, all the camping and fishing gear you could ever, ever dream of. One day I was out on the street, and he was showing me his boat, and we were talking about his boat. And he said this to me. He owned his own business. It was a plumbing business, and because he had a, a business, he could take every Friday off in the summer... And from Friday morning till Sunday night, he with friends and family would go up to the mountains and spend the whole weekend camping out, jet skiing, fishing, hiking, eating loads and loads of food, drinking plenty of beer the whole weekend. And I remember we were out in the street and we're looking at this big, big boat. And he said this to me. I live for the weekend. I never forgot that. I live for the weekend. And my first thought was, Paul would never say that. He'd say, I live for Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with boating. There's nothing wrong with fishing. I was with brother today, and he caught free fish. I saw these fish myself. He's not lying to you. They were, well, maybe, maybe I don't know, but they were little. But he said they were big. But anyway, I... I that's a good thing. The Lord gives rest to his saints. He wants you to relax. wants you to enjoy the mountains, right? Nothing wrong with that. But you don't live for that. 
Christian can't say, I live for the weekends to party with my family and friends. I live for personal pleasure. That's idolatry. That's a self-centered life. But we live the Christ-centered life. And when you live the Christ-centered life, you live the people-centered life because Christ turns you to care for His people. And in caring for His people, it's caring for Him. So, we live for Christ. Now, he's going to explain a little bit more about this ministry and the course laid out for him. Do you all have notes? You all have notes? Okay, you need those notes. Testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was under divine marching order to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, the word gospel, euangelion, means good news, glad tidings. And one writer put it this way, could it be that the biblical gospel is in fact the very best news imaginable? It is the very best news imaginable. And that's about forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, adoption into God's family, deliverance from spiritual darkness and wrath and death, the gospel includes the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the exhilarating promise of eternal life and a new heaven and a new earth. And Paul summarizes this in Ephesians 1.13, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He had a message of salvation, eternal life. Now, the gospel is described here for us, the good news, the very best news is described as the gospel of the grace of God. Grace is one of the most important words in the Christian faith. God's grace is his divine favor freely given to the undeserving, which cannot be earned or merited. Now, to really understand the gospel of the grace of God, we have to look at the bad news first. What's the bad news? The bad news is the horrible nature of our sin. Mankind's stubborn rebellion against the Creator. He's shaking his fist in God's face. And God's just wrath against lawlessness and disobedience and rejection of divine authority. Also, to understand that God does not owe us anything. We think His grace to us is because we deserve it. Or we're such nice people, He can't do anything else but love us. God's grace is His kind and extravagant initiative to provide for the ungodly a means of salvation we could never achieve on our own, no matter how hard we would try. It is His favor towards us to provide what we could never earn or merit on this earth. It was the great and glorious doctrine of the grace of God that drove Paul to say, I don't really consider my life of any value or precious to myself. 
Now, in all the world and among all the religions of the world, there is no other message of salvation like the gospel of the grace of God to sinners provided by the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other religion that teaches the gospel of the grace of God. There is no other religion. You ever hear people say, oh, it annoys me to no end. All religions are saying the same thing. They're all saying, no, they're not. They're saying quite different things. We're saying that God is triune. And the second person of the triune God became man and lived among this earth and became the substitutionary sacrifice for our, our sin to bring us to God. There is no religion saying that. Just empty-headedness when people say that. There is no religion that speaks of the grace of God and the plan of salvation that God has laid out. That's why there is only one way. There's only one message. And Paul says, I must testify. I must be like a witness in court to the gospel of the grace of God. And that's why he says in Ephesians 1.6, To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved to the praise of His glorious grace, how He has blessed us in the Beloved. No wonder Paul was so taken with the gospel of the grace of God, it moved him to be willing to give his life to testify to this message. To know it, protect it, and proclaim it. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he was set aside for the defense of the gospel. He is the great explainer of this gospel and defender of this gospel and propagator of this gospel. Now we understand why he said, I don't consider my life precious in comparison to finishing the course and testifying to the gospel of the grace of God, which now is all recorded for us in Romans and Galatians, Hebrews, we know the gospel message. Well, it's one of the great statements in all of the New Testaments of complete and total dedication to Christ. And the message. I said to you last night that we have an urgent message. It's an authoritative message. Nicodemus said of Christ, you're a teacher come from God. The message comes directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1. Paul received this. He didn't make it up. He wasn't some clever rabbi with maverick ideas. He received the message directly from Christ. And he gave that message directly to the elders. Now this brings us to our next point. Six, it should be in your outline. Serving as a watchman, teaching the whole counsel of God. So Paul has just explained his motivation, what drives him, explains his life, his thinking. But now he goes on in verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, key statement, will see my face again. Therefore, in light of that serious prediction, therefore, 
I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Watch for these little words like therefore and for. For explains why he's innocent. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Many times the Ephesian elders heard Paul publicly preach the gospel of the grace of God and the kingdom of God. But they won't in the future. You will not see my face again. Now, that little phrase sort of sets the mood and the tone for the whole address. He will not be there to answer their questions. He will not be their teacher directly anymore. They may never see him again. That's why you see at the end of the story, they cry and they weep. Now, this crucial statement is followed by the conjunction, therefore, because they will not see him again, therefore, he testifies as solemnly before them that he's innocent of the blood of all. No one could say, you did not give me the word of the Lord. No one can be lost and go to hell and say, Paul didn't tell me. Nor can these elders say, he did not prepare us. We had no idea what we were going to face. No, he says, I'm innocent of this blood. I have testified to the gospel, the grace of God, and I have given you the whole counsel of God. Now, what he's thinking here is of Ezekiel and the watchmen on the wall. It's a term we should use more. We don't use it very much. But all church leaders are watchmen. Watchmen on the wall. Now, in those days, there was no satellites. I know it's hard to believe. No radar systems in the ancient world. And so cities would be fortified by a wall, and uh, there would always be enemies, always invaders, and you would have to have watchmen on the wall. And the principle was this. If the watchman fell asleep or got preoccupied with nonsense, and the enemy came and the people weren't warned and the people were killed and the women raped and things stolen, the watchman would have to give his life, his blood. He would not be innocent. He would be responsible. But if the watchmen warn the people, the enemy is coming, the intruders are coming, protect yourself, be on guard, and they didn't listen, he was innocent of their blood. So that's the idea Paul is here, is saying. He is innocent. No one could say, you did not tell us the word of the Lord. He was a vigilant watchman. Warning, warning. We're going to see that in just a moment. For three years, he says, night and day, he did not cease to warn them and admonish them, each and every one. Now, this leads to one of the great statements of the entire address, and it should convict us as a local church, teaching the whole counsel of God. Paul, the reason Paul can assert with such confidence that he's innocent of the blood of all is this statement. For, watch those little fours, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The four introduces a reason. Paul was innocent of the blood because he was consistently and diligently teaching them the whole counsel of God. Now, there's different ways to translate this statement, the whole counsel of God. Um, the international version has the whole will of God. The Christian Standard Bible has the whole plan of God. 
The New American Standard, New Revised Version, the Net Bible, has the whole purpose of God. Any of those phrases uh, communicate uh, the importance of this concept. Now, this is the second time he has said this. In verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Now, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Almost the exact same words. So I would have to say, this is a big concept in the sermon. You got the whole truth. You got the whole gospel, the gospel of the grace of God. And so I said to you last night, and this is very, very uh, important and essential to this. No one could come later, which they do come. The Judaizers are right there. The moment Paul leaves, they're right there. And they say something like this, like all cults say today, you don't have the whole gospel. Paul left out a few of the finer points, a few of the things that are rather offensive. He didn't tell you uh, your part in salvation. You do need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. If anyone came and said that, which they did, those elders could say, oh, no, oh, no. When he left there, he reminded us twice that he gave us the whole counsel of God. Didn't leave anything out. Didn't worry about the points that are rather offensive. Paul was thorough in declaring the whole counsel of God to the church and to all of its. He prepared them. He educated them. He protected them. Now, this phrase, the whole counsel of God, is a wonderful phrase. The term counsel here refers to the divine sovereign will, the purpose, the plan of God. Any of those terms are fine. God's plans are not capricious or unpredictable, just like the ancient Greek gods who were very capricious. You never knew what they were going to do. They're based on divine intention and determination. The God of the Bible knows the beginning and the end of human history and everything in between. And he has determined it. It will unfold according to his own purpose. Isaiah tells us this, Isaiah 46, one of the great verses of Isaiah. For I am God, God's telling us who he is, there is no other, there's no other God. All the religions aren't saying the same things, not a different God. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient time things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. God's not up in heaven going from foot to foot with sweaty palms going, Oh my, I never thought that would happen. Oh, oops. I've purposed it. I will do it. I will bring it to pass. Now notice the little word all or whole. It's the whole purpose of God, the whole plan of God. That's what he taught, everything. In other words, he taught the whole Bible. The whole counsel of God includes the entire storyline of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. All the major Bible doctrines from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam to Christ. The Bible presents a coherent story 
God's master plan, His sovereign redeeming purposes. In the letter of Ephesians, Paul says this, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. He's not guessing at what's going to happen. As a result, the Ephesian elders had the best seminary education possible by the best teacher possible. They were not ignorant of the gospel or of the plan of God. Now this brings up a very, very important point for our churches. I would have to say, and I think statistics prove this, that the vast majority of Christian people who profess the Bible do not know the storyline of the Bible. They cannot put in order Abraham, Moses, David, and Jeremiah or the covenants of God. If you were to ask them, put them in order. This, by the way, happens at many Christian colleges. The first year students come in, they take this test. Who's first? Abraham, Paul, Jesus, Paul, Peter? The vast majority cannot put them in order. They don't see the unfolding story of the Bible. Really, for many Christians, the Bible is a foreign book. They have no idea how God is revealing himself and unfolding the story of redemption. Paul said, you got the whole plan of God, the whole will of God, Genesis to Revelation. And it is a story. It is a storyline. It's, it's God's unfolding purposes and plans and how the books of the Bible fit in those places. I'm telling you from talking to many people over the years, it is a foreign book. They know more about the, of the stars of Hollywood than they know about the patriarchs of the Bible. And that's particularly true of our young people. Well, Paul says, I'm a watchman on the wall. I'm innocent of your blood. I gave you the whole storyline. I gave you the story of the Bible. I gave you the covenants. I gave you the patriarchs. I gave you the great doctrines of the faith. He's a watchman. And the watchman warned the people. And he'll bring that up in verse 31 again. My challenge to you this evening is a challenge. How are we educating our people in the story of the scriptures? That they, they can in their mind see the great events and the movements of the Bible and they have some idea of the first five books of the Bible and the historical books, poetic books. Or is it just, you know, I open my Bible. Oh, I'll read here today. Ooh, open my Bible here. So every year at our church for probably over 40 years, we throw a challenge out to our people in the month of December. And it's a challenge. We remind people we're Littleton Bible Chapel. We want you reading your Bible. So we offer four or five different programs. Some is just read the New Testament in a year. That's about all they can do. Others read the Old Testament in three years. Read the whole Bible in one year. We try to give them a challenge to get them into their Bibles. The Bible is the Word of God. It is the Word of the Lord. It's the only thing that is true. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching to equip us for living for God and serving God. What a terrible thing when our people live in ignorance 
There's so many distractions today. It's called the age of distraction. It's a real thing. Sociologists tell us this. Never in human history has there been so many distractions. We have sports. We have movies. There are these companies that offer thousands of movies. Why? You could be watching movies 24 hours a day and never see them all. Television. All these distractions. And they're pulling us far from God. We have to address this. We need to address it with our people. If you are to learn the Bible, it's, it's a pretty big book. You're going to have to give time. You're going to have to make sacrifices. You're going to have to use that word. Let me tell you what the word is. Are you ready? Are you all ready? No. Repeat that with me. No. No, a little louder. That wasn't very high. No. no. Uh, one more time. Really hit it. No. Now, a little bit better. We're going to have to say no to all these distractions that are pulling us from God. And no wonder this is a foreign book. It's a big book. We're people of the book. We are to know the book. There's no way to grow outside the Bible. You'll just get yourself in trouble. So, there are books on the market. We gave a series, I think it was a six-month series, taking the whole congregation through the whole Bible. The great events, the great mountain peak events, the great covenants given, what they mean, the great patriarchs, the great promises of the Bible through the whole Bible. There are good books. Uh, there's uh, audio material that we need to make available to our people. And we need to challenge them. They don't know their Bibles. They know the here and there. Many people skip all around like it's a lucky rabbit's foot. Oh, I read the Bible today. Without understanding. You need to read the Bible with understanding. There's good study Bible material today. I really encourage people to have a good study Bible that has our theology and to use those commentary notes at the bottom because many people read the Bible without understanding. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you don't have a commentary or help. I mean, you don't even know what you're reading. And books like Jeremiah jump around historically. You need something to guide you. When you meet a new Christian, what's the first thing you tell a new Christian? Well, here's what you tell a new Christian. In fact, I had this happen to me. I was at a church and I got done. A young lady came up to me, maybe early 20s, and said, I've just become a born-again Christian. So I said to her, what have people told you to do? You're just brand new baby. Well, he told me witness. He told me do this. I said, has anyone told you read right through the Bible? No. All right, so I'm going to tell you what to do. You're a brand new believer. Read it like a novel. Start in Genesis 1 and in, in six months, m minimum, read right through the Bible because you can't understand Ephesians and Romans and Hebrews if you don't understand or know the story of the Bible. I mean, it's, uh, it's just uh, not even making sense. So I want you to read right through the Bible. Don't worry about understanding. That will be a lifetime of understanding. But I want you to read right through the Bible. Put some serious time in this so you know the story of God that he has given to us of redemption and of the revelation of himself. You don't know God outside the Bible. That's his chosen means of revealing himself. But we need to challenge our people with the whole counsel of God. Find a book. Find a source that will teach you. I know there's this one book 
uh, 30 days through the Bible, which I don't think it's realistic 30 days, uh, by Max Anders. And it's a nice book with lots of charts and, and guides so that a Christian, <laughs> you don't even need to be a brand new Christian, could read this book that takes you through the Bible with charts and, and uh, uh, helps so you understand 30 days through the Bible. You say, oh, I see how it all fits together now. It's a coherent story. And you won't be able to understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. So anyway, this is a great challenge Paul is giving to the Ephesian elders and to us. I'm innocent. Anyone winds up in hell, anyone says they don't know how to protect the church, I gave you the whole counsel of God. Nothing is missing. Anything that was profitable, I told you. And now I'm leaving. You will not see my face again. And this brings us to the next section, which is the eminent danger that the church is under with Paul's absence. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for these powerful words. Help us to put them in practice and to help our people. In Christ's name, amen.